Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. My home is not on this earth, not in this world. On Saturday 20th of October, Justin Moat taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions where Justin looked at the wisdom books of the Bible, focusing in particular on the book of Job. Justin is the former head of the Northwest Partnership Ministry Trainee Course and a regular speaker on various theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. Andy, thanks so much. Thank you so much for the invitation to be with you. That's a great treat for me and a great treat for my daughter because uh, she decided that she would uh, come with me in the car and then she could take the car and go shopping in Manchester, which meant she could get to Manchester for the uh, morning and I end up paying for the petrol. So so she thought that was a great win-win for her. So... um, uh, she's home from university for the weekend and uh, will take as much uh, money as she can from her father while she's home, which is just how it is with uh, children. It is a great joy to be with you. Andy was our star student uh, ten, uh, t- t- 10 years ago. That is what you've told me to say, isn't it? Uh, uh, Andy was one of our star students and we loved uh, having him he was working then as a ministry trainee in Bramhall, is that right? As a youth worker or ministry trainee uh, there. What we're going to do this morning is, uh, I've got two sessions really, but now Andy's told me I've got to do over three <laughs> sessions. So um, we'll, see, we'll just see where we get to, and we'll stop at 10 o'clock wherever we've got to and then we'll pick it up after... Okay, and then we'll see where we've got to, and then we'll pick it up, and we'll uh, run like that. I want to make sure that there's plenty of time for questions, so why not at any point scribble down a question? You might be brave and interrupt me with your question, and if you are brave, let me tell you I am not like Winston Churchill. Do you know the story of Winston Churchill who was once giving an after-dinner uh, speech, and a woman stood up and said, Mr. Churchill, you're drunk, very drunk. Very, very drunk. And Churchill looked her in the eye and said, Madam, you're ugly. Very ugly. Very, very ugly. But the difference is that tomorrow I'll be sober. He was was the master of the put-down. There was an an occasion in the House of Commons when he was Prime Minister and uh, the leader of the opposition, uh, as Churchill was in mid-speech, stood up. And you know how um, in the House of Commons, if someone stands up, the speaker gives way to the person who uh, is going to ask a question. And uh, Attlee interrupted Churchill and just said, Mr Churchill, can you lend me tuppence to call a friend? And Churchill looked him in the eye and said, sure. I'll lend you four pence and you can call all of them. (laughs) Welcome. Lovely to have you here. I'm just telling jokes at the moment. So, If if you want to interrupt, that's fine. And I will not put you down like that. But if you want to just make a note of any questions that come along, then uh, we'll have time for questions in each session. Let me just wait for our friends to find seats and... Andy might want to find them a handout. There's some certainly spares down in the front here. 
Great to have you here. You might want to sit around tables, huddle together and keep warm. So we're going to be thinking about the uh, wisdom literature in, um, in this uh, session. Let me first say that uh, the way our Old Testament has been ordered is not the same as the Hebrew Old Testament. And our Old Testament, if you turn to your contents page of your Bible, if you've got a contents page of the Bible... And because I don't know you guys, I don't know how much you know, so I don't know how much of this is Coles to Newcastle, how much this will be uh, brand new to you. Our Old Testament... Our Old Testament split into three uh, sections. Broadly, Genesis down to the book of Esther are what's called the history books. Now, you can subdivide that into the law, the Torah, the first five books, the Pentateuch, and the other history books. But generally, the whole of the story of the whole of the Old Testament is contained in the history that runs from Genesis, obviously starting with creation, and running right the way through to the book of Esther, which is a book that happens right at the end of the Old Testament uh, period. And those books are all telling the history uh, of Uh, of the Old Testament. We then come to a section that runs from Job through to Song of Songs, which is what we call the wisdom literature. So Job through to the Song of Songs, which is what we call the wisdom literature. And then Isaiah through to Malachi are what we call the writing prophets. There are 16 of them. I know if you count carefully, there are 17. Uh, Lamentations was almost certainly written by Jeremiah and can be uh, put together with Jeremiah. But you've then got 16 writing prophets, often divided into four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel, and then the 12 minor prophets, Hosea through to Malachi. So the wisdom literature that we're uh, thinking about is the bit in the middle and runs from Job through to Song of Songs. It is not the same as the uh, Old Testament in Hebrew, where in the Old Testament in Hebrew, the Hebrew writings include books like Ruth and Daniel, Ezra and Nehemiah, and ends with the last book of the Hebrew Old Testament, Chronicles, because it's the last book written in the Old Testament. So, slightly differently. The wisdom literature that we're going to look at, Job through to Song of Songs, was written over a long, long time period. Now, I gather you did Psalms last time with uh, Ralph Cunnington. Uh, The Psalms are a collection of songs written over a very long period. Psalm 90, for example, has got a little superscription, a little heading that says, Moses, by Moses. Written, therefore, in the book of Exodus kind of time. And then there are psalms that are written after what's called the return from exile, written in the time of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, some people think Esther ought to be uh, considered as a wisdom literature book as well. And so that's very late indeed. So written over a long period of uh, time. The material is a mixture of narrative... So we'll see in a moment or two, Job chapters 1 and 2 is story, it's narrative, but a lot of it is poetry. 
In fact, it's the biggest section of poetry that you've got in the whole of the scriptures. So, for example, all of the Psalms are poetry. Song of Songs is entirely poetry. Some, some of the books seem to have a single author. The book of Job seems to have been written by one person. We don't know who, but uh, a single author. And then there are anthologies. So, for example, the Psalms, written by lots of different writers. Well, okay, David wrote at least half of them, but other writers wrote Psalms as well. Proverbs is an anthology. Although the greater bulk of um, the Proverbs were written by, appear to have been written by uh, Solomon, there are other writers of the Proverbs too. Indeed, some of the Proverbs, and I've put some references down there, we won't look at them, but some seem to be written by non-Jews. And we'll think about why that could be in just a moment. Let me make some general observations, and then what we're going to spend our time doing, because I thought it would fit well with our topic for the second half, is use Job as a case study to see how these things work out in one single book. So instead of giving you a little bit on each of the wisdom literature, we're going to study Job as an example, and it will, I think, fit well with what we'll do in the second half of the morning when we're going to think about a biblical theology of suffering. Does that make sense? Everyone on board for that? Two, two general observations to say about the wisdom literature. The first is what I've called wisdom and issues of order. One of the things that the wisdom literature does is to observe the world from the perspective of a believer, to observe the world and work out that you can understand things about the world and about how to live as a believer in the world by observation. A book like the book of Proverbs works in that kind of way. The book of Proverbs will tell you the general truisms of how a believer should live in the world that God has made. Now, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that you can observe things about the world just by observing the world. Because we believe that God has created the world, we believe that God is a God of order, and therefore no surprise to discover that we can observe things that are generally true in our world. Now that is also the case, although the uh, Proverbs writer is writing from the perspective of a believer, it's no surprise to find that non-Christians can also observe the world and come up with general truisms about the world. And in fact, we have proverbs, English proverbs, that are true, generally. So a proverb like, still waters run deep. That's an English proverb. It's, it's generally true. If you see a river that's running in a still way, it's likely to be a deep river. If it's a shallow river, you'll see it much more kind of, if it's running over stones, you'll see, you'll, see, you'll see that it's not running as still. It's a general truism. I wouldn't put my life on it. So I wouldn't dive from 30 feet into a river that I saw was still. Because although it's generally true, it's not an absolute. And that explains, when you come to things like the book of Proverbs... 
you can come up with what look like contradictions. Treat a fool according to his folly. And then, don't treat a fool according to his folly. Is that a contradiction? No. It just means the context sometimes you treat a fool according to this foolishness. Treat them like a fool. And then there'll be other occasions where you don't treat a fool like a fool. You take them seriously and treat them as not a fool. But what happens in the wisdom literature is, for example, in Proverbs, looking at the world from the perspective of a believer and giving wise advice on how to live as God's people in this world. Or the Song of Songs, which is the raciest of all the Old Testament books. And don't be embarrassed about it. Um, You would expect, wouldn't you, the Bible to have some poems about sex and about romantic love, wouldn't you? Because that's part of life. And what the uh, writer of Song of Songs, lots of debate about whether it's Solomon or not, Song of Songs, it just means it's the best song. You know that something of something in the Bible is the best. So the holy of holies is often translated as the most holy place. When, when we're told that Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, it just means he's the best king. He's the ultimate lord. So song of songs just means it's the best song ever. And it's the best song ever written about a couple who move from being Well, I think we would say going out to getting married and to enjoying married life and uh, the exploration of each other and each other's bodies. And they say it in all kinds of extraordinary poetic ways. Your neck is like a gazelle. Your teeth are like sheep's teeth. Now, I've never thought of actually saying that to my wife. But, but that's what it's doing. It's doing it in poetry and, uh, and it's telling you wisely how to live in a couple relationship. And one of the things that's brilliant, wise advice in the Song of Solomon, for example, Song of Songs, is, is tell your spouse, tell your love how wonderful they are. See, it's very easy to, well, easy to run our spouses down, isn't it? But in the Song of Songs, you never, ever hear them running each other down. They're always bigging each other up. How lovely is that? And amazingly, they don't just do it to each other. They do it publicly to all kinds of other people. So the beloved she will say, my, my man's the best man ever. I think he's terrific. It's a great piece of wisdom, isn't it? On how to keep your relationship fresh and alive. So I am married to the best woman in the world. She is remarkable. She's got more beautiful every year. She is hardworking. She is 
keen. She is thrilled to be praying every morning with me. She is just amazing. Isn't that, isn't that good to rejoice like that? Wisdom and issues of order. The wisdom literature looks at the world from the perspective of believers and tells you how to live. But, but we then have to have, uh, have the wisdom and the gaps because one of the things the wisdom literature does is tell you you cannot know and understand the world you live in merely by observation. So you can look at the world and there are things you can learn from the world by looking at the world. You can understand things, but you can't understand enough. And for example, a book like Ecclesiastes does that very, very well. Do you know how the book of Ecclesiastes runs? The Solomon observes, 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 observes. And do you know what the repeated word through the book of Ecclesiastes is? Sorry? Meaningless. Or vacuous, or empty, or vain, or, or of, of... You cannot, you cannot understand enough by just observing the world. If you could, you wouldn't need this. If you can understand all you need to understand by observing the world, then you don't need God to break in and reveal through his word by his spirit. And so, and so the wisdom literature has got this blend, and we're going to see this, we're going to do the case study in just a moment, has got this blend of, yes, you can come up with wise understanding by observation, but you can't come up with enough by observation. So, um, now, the, 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 the risk of being naughty. Um, have you come across hymns like? Do you know this, the slightly older one? Jesus is Lord, creation's voice proclaims it. Do you know that one? Or do you know the more modern one, Jesus is Lord, the echo that... What's, the, what's that one? That, that, nice, that nice new musician, was it? Jesus is Lord, the echo that rings through creation, something like that? Do you think that's true? Do you think Jesus is Lord, creation's voice proclaims it? Do you think that's true? Absolutely not, it's heresy. It's complete heresy, so don't ever sing it. <laughs> you, see, you see, Jesus is Lord is the gospel, isn't it? It's the shortest summary of the gospel in the Bible, Jesus is Lord. Yes? Agree? If creation proclaims it, and you can understand it by observing creation, if you can get to the conclusion Jesus is Lord just by looking at the creation, then he did not need to step into this world and he did not need to give us the scriptures. Because creation does not provide you with the information, all the information you need. You need God to have broken into the creation and spoken his word, which is what we have in the scriptures. So have you got the tension 
There's the tension, and we'll, we'll, we're now going to see it. We're just going to look at one book. We might not get um, very far but, um, uh, before we have coffee, but we'll get to the whole of the book of Job by the, uh, by the end. So turn to the book of Job, if you will. So the first of the wisdom books. And you'll see both of these ideas work through the text. And it'll introduce the whole idea of suffering for us for after coffee. So let me read chapter 1 and verses 1 to 5, which is the introduction. And introduces us to the man. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, so almost certainly always broke. And no, he wasn't actually. He was extraordinarily wealthy, verse 3. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their houses, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would offer sacrifices of burnt offerings for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. This is the best scene that you'll find in the Bible outside of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2 and the new creation in Revelation 21 and 22. This is as good as it gets. Now, we don't know a lot about this man, uh, Job. For example, we don't know where he lived. Oh, well, you say, look at verse 1, in the land of Uz. But the trouble is, where was the land of Uz? We have no idea. Oh, do you say, well, it's in the east, verse 3. But east of where? Everywhere is east of somewhere, isn't it? Now, sometimes people in other parts of the world don't get this clear. You and I know that when God created the world, he put the nought degree line through England. He put, <laughs> he put, it, he put it through Greenwich. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so we know that, um, I don't know, America is in, the, is in the west of us. And Japan's in the east of us. We know that. But do you know what? We went to Australia a few years ago and we saw that they'd got maps on their walls. And do you know what country they'd put in the very centre? Australia. Do we know Australia is not the centre of the light? We know that it's England. So when you're told he's, in the, he's the greatest man of all the people in the east, east of where? We don't know. We don't, we don't know where Uz was and we don't know where, where, east, where Uz was east of. We don't know where he lived. But what we do know is how he lived. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Now remember that phrase because we're going to come back to it in uh, a couple of times in the book. He feared God and shunned evil. He is extraordinarily blessed. Ten children. Extraordinarily wealthy. And willing to make sacrifices for his children. He's concerned about their godliness, not just his own. And they seem to have such a happy family. I don't know whether you've got children. We have now, we've got, we've, 
We've had three children for quite a long time. But they've now got to a stage of life where they delightfully get on. It's a great joy when the three of them are all together. And we just, my wife and I, we just, we just sit in the kitchen and listen to them and just rejoice in listening to them chatting with each other. It's just terrific. Let me tell you, it has not always been like that. We had some teenage squabbles. We had teenage sulks. We had teenage, I hate you. Fortunately, those days seem to be over. But here you've got a family where the brothers and sisters are all delightfully getting on. This is, this is as good as it gets. But the big issue is introduced for us then in verse 6. Without explanation of, um, of where this court scene is, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, and when just not explained how it's possible for Satan to be in the presence of the Lord and what this angelic court scene is really all about, other than it raises a massive issue. Satan answers from roaming through the earth and going to and fro in it. Satan's been walkabout on the earth. And the Lord God says, well, if you've been walkabout on the earth, if you've been and observed what's really happening on the earth, well... Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. In other words, God's assessment of him is exactly the same as the writer's is in verse 1. In other words, the writer isn't making this up. This is exactly how things are. Job is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And the question is, Satan, what explanation have you got for that? What explanation have you got for real faith? Because that's what fearing God and shunning evil is really all about. What, what explanation have you got for someone living the life of faith on the earth? And you can almost hear Satan sneer in verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, it's just he fears you because of divine bribery. That's all it is. It's not real faith. <laughs> Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that the flocks and the herds are spread throughout the land. Of course Job will fear you when everything's going well. Faith, faith isn't real faith. Not for Job. It's just a matter of a divine bribe because there's a strong but in the Hebrew, verse 11. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Yeah, so take away the good times and he will curse you. Now this, this, this is a satanic lie. Faith is not... A response to divine bribery. And Satan's lie must be proved to be a lie. And so the Lord says to Satan, very well then. Everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. In other words, the Lord God is not going to inflict the suffering on Job. But he will allow it to happen. It's Satan who inflicts the suffering. The Lord will allow it to happen. Why? 
to prove that Satan's words are lying. That faith can survive. That faith is not the response to divine bribery. Faith is faith because it's trust in God. Now, if you read through verse 13 through to the end of the chapter, four calamities, one after another, natural disasters and then enemy attacks in a repeating uh, pattern come. And first, his wealth is all taken away. And once his wealth has been taken away, his family is then taken away. Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking at the oldest brother's house, this is verse 18 and then 19, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert. It struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. Can you imagine that? Ten children, and all of them have gone. Now, I don't know whether Andy asked me to uh, speak on um, the suffering topic after coffee because he knows that I have had some experience of suffering or not, but... um, uh, jo uh, is my second wife, and my first wife died when she was 25 um, in a car crash. She was one of three children, and all three of the children died before they were 30. That's a pretty big deal for the parents. Imagine it for Ruth's mum and dad to lose all three of your children, not one of them get to the age of 30. All die in their 20s. Pretty big thing, isn't it? Well, Job had ten children. And you'll know other, other people who've suffered in those kind of ways. Sir Norman Anderson, he had three children. Christian, uh, Christian leader, Christian scientist. Um, that's not the right way of saying that, is it? Christ- a scientist who's Christian. <laughs> was what I meant to say for the recording. A Christian who happened to be a scientist. Professor Norman Anderson, he had three children. And they all died before uh, he... Norman Anderson and his wife died. Big thing, isn't it, to lose... Oh, big thing to lose a miscarriage. Big thing to lose a child. I've had to do funerals of um, babies that were born stillborn or children that have died very young. Imagine losing all ten of your children and all your wealth as well. Now, what does Satan think Job is going to do at verse 20? Curse God to his face. face. That's what Satan thinks will happen. And actually, the very opposite is what happens. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Now, those are are just Old Testament words for he mourned. So it doesn't say, verse 20, at this Job had a big smile on his face. Grieving is normal and natural. Jesus wept at the graveside of Lazarus, didn't he, in John 11. At this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. It is right and normal to show sadness, distress, upset, mourning when suffering comes. Then he fell to the ground in worship. That's faith. 
And notice the basis of it. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. Well, that was true for you too, wasn't it? I've been present at four births, my own, which I don't remember very well. And amazingly, I made it to all three of my children's births, and they all came out naked. None of them had a silver spoon in their mouth. They all came out naked, and that's how we go. That's how we go too. And Job says, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And the conclusion, verse 22, in all this, Job did not curse God. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now, how is it possible for Job to make a response like that? Well, the answer is, you've been told he's been godly before suffering. Let me just suggest pastorally that we will not be able to cope with suffering if we're not in the practice of being godly before the suffering comes. Just worth, you know, it wasn't that Job was kind of just drifting and then suddenly suffering comes and then he... And then he has faith. No, he had faith before he was suffering. What happens in chapter 2 in verses 1 to 10 is we go around the same cycle of, uh, of chapter 1. Uh, it's what's called by the scholars, and this is really big in the wisdom literature. You'll see it time and time again uh, in the Psalms, and you'll see it time and time again in the Song of Solomon, is what's called a repetitive cycle. In other words, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 has got almost exactly the same language as chapter 1. So see if you recognise. So on another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to uh, present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going to and fro in it. That's almost exactly the same language as chapter 1. Let's repeat. Now, when you get repetitive cycles in uh, the wisdom literature, you'll, you'll find you get it in other places. The uh, book of Judges, you get the kind of pattern of what happens in the book of Judges, and then it keeps happening again and again and again. And the thing to do is, yes, repetition is the mother of all learning. Repetition is the mother of all learning. Repetition is the mother of all learning. So, so you, are meant to, you are meant to learn from the fact that things are re- being repeated. But the thing you also do is spot the difference. Do you ever do that? Have you, if, 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 when our kids were young, we, if we went out to a pub for lunch, they'd often, often give you a little kind of activity pack for the kids to do while you kind of pretend to eat your meal in peace but anyway and the activity pack would often have two pictures and they would be very similar but you had to spot the 10 differences you know the kind of one that hasn't got a hat on and the other and so on and you spot the differences well see if you spot the difference that goes on here in verse three so the lord said to satan have you considered my servant job there is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. That's exactly the same language as chapter 1. And then notice the addition. Here's the difference. 
and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. He still maintains his integrity. There's the, that's, the, that's the new bit in chapter 2. In other words, what God is saying is saying, actually what Job did at the end of chapter 1, this worshipping of the Lord, that was him maintaining his integrity. Well, Satan still thinks that he's got a reason for it. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. In other words... You've got to go one step further than just removing his property. You've got to go one step further than removing his family. You've actually got to strike him. And Satan's Satan's line here is also a lie. And so it must be answered. Shown to be a lie, the Lord says to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Life is something that is in God's hand, and God's hand alone. The days of man are numbered and known only to the Lord. Satan, you can't have his life, but you can, but you can affect his body. You can impact his flesh. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And here's the difference from chapter 1. It's no longer his possessions, it's no longer his family. He afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. You had an experience like that or know someone? Our youngest, Harry, for the first, well, he still got it, but uh, suffered dreadfully from eczema when he was young. We had to sew his pyjama hands up so that he couldn't scratch himself. He had to, still has to cover his whole body with uh, this cream. The whole of his body, every day, twice a day, has to cover the whole of his body with this gloopy, horrible cream that kind of then sticks to his clothes. It's horrible. Well, that's something a little like what Job was experiencing in verse 8. And then notice the difference. Verse 9. You see, we haven't had no mention of Job's wife yet. But here she comes, verse 9. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now we haven't got time to do some of the parallels here, but can you think of anywhere else? where Satan's temptation actually comes through a person. Sorry? Adam and Eve's a good example. You see, yeah, Adam and Eve's a good example. There it is, a wife that the Satan is using to tempt her husband. You get an example of it, for example, um, in the Gospels, when Jesus says he's going to go to the cross, and Peter says, no. And what does Jesus say to Peter, do you remember? Get behind me. Satan. In other words, he's acknowledging that Peter is the object of Satan's scheming temptation. Does that make sense? Well, here you've got a woman who Satan is using. Notice that what she is calling on him to do, verse 9, is curse God and die, which is exactly what Satan wants to happen. What happened in the Garden of Eden? 
when Eve tempted Adam. What did he do? He ate it. Genesis 3, verse 6. I always used to think, this is in brackets, aside, I used to think that when the conversation between the serpent and the snake and Eve was taking place, I always used to think that Adam was down in the potting shed at the end of the garden. But actually, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 says, he was with her. He heard the conversation. What do you think a loving husband should have done when he's heard the conversation between the snake and, uh, and Eve and she's just about to take the fruit and just about to put it in her mouth? What do you think Adam should have done? That would have been a loving husbandly thing to do, wouldn't it? But he doesn't. Actually, what Adam should have done is exactly what Job does do here in verse 10. You are talking like a foolish woman. In other words, don't be a blithering idiot in love. (laughs) Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And the repeat again from the end of chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 10. In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. In other words, Satan's attempt has failed. Satan says faith cannot cope with suffering and that in suffering, ultimately, you will be cursed by the sufferer. And in these two major cycles of the suffering, in all this, Job did not sin, either by charging God with wrongdoing or in anything he said. Faith can survive the snake is a liar it is not inevitable that people will give up on faith when suffering comes now we'll pause just there for a moment and say and say do you want to ask a question about what's going on here at this moment or does that make sense it's a great book isn't it yeah? No? Yeah. Do we just have to accept that you were saying about that weird accord and God and Satan in his presence, which doesn't make any sense? Is that just presented and we just have to take that to, just to make sense of the rest of the book? Yes. Yes, I, 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 think, I think so. And it's just not explained. Perhaps the thing I ought to have said as well, just in, as, as you look at chapter uh, 1 through to chapter 2, verse 10, is that Job never in the book gets to know about that conversation that goes on. We've been allowed to read of this so that we make sense of what's going to happen, what's going on with Job, so that we understand what is lying behind why Job suffers. But Job never gets to learn why he suffers. And I'm afraid, I think this will come up in the last session of the morning, I'm afraid one of the things we're going to have to say, conclude at the end of the morning, is a lot of suffering that you and I experience is unexplained. Uh, We just don't know the answer. But, but, but... We get to know why Job suffers so that we understand what the really big push 
of the book is, is that faith can survive it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, we, we don't with any absolute definitive uh, nature. Um, the Hebrew of it is very old Hebrew and is the closest Hebrew in the Old Testament to the Hebrew of Job is uh, the book of Genesis. And so many scholars think that it's, it, it's, it's in the time of kind of perhaps Abraham, somewhere, somewhere around there. We, we can't know um, for absolute um, uh, certainty. Uh, later on in the book, there is mention of um, uh, people like um, Noah and um, Ezekiel. So you know, you know that it must be, um, perhaps someone's edited it later, but quite when the account of it happened, we can't be sure. But I think... And, and we, don't know who, we don't know who the editor uh, was. That's true of lots of Old Testament books. Um, so, yeah. Have you done 1 and 2 Chronicles yet? In, yeah? We don't know who wrote 1 and 2 Chronicles. There's huge debate about it. Um, but no, nobody actually knows who the editor, editor was. Uh, we don't even know, for example, uh, with the Psalms. We know, we know who wrote many of the Psalms, we know who the authors were, but who put them together in that five-book collection of the 150 that there are? Who put them together in the order in which they come? We don't, we, we, we don't know. And we don't know with Job who, who, the, who the editor uh, was. Anything else? Well, that is a natural breaking point in the book. So, because um, we're going to come on to Job's uh, friends in verse 11. So, it's uh, two minutes to ten. Should we go for early coffee and come back in, what, quarter of an hour? Yes. Okay, let's do that. Let's, um, we'll, we'll finish the book of Job off and we'll see where we're up to then, about whether we have uh, coffee again and uh, then when we do a biblical theology of, uh, of suffering. But, um, so, chapter 2, uh, verse 11. We're now going to be introduced to the persistent question and the dangerous answers. Now, we can't do this in the detail. We've done the first bit of chapters 1 and 2. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad, he's the um, smallest man in the Bible because he's shoe height. Uh, that's, that's a ching ching. That's an old one. You can have that one for free. And Zophar the Nomothite. Yeah, thank you. And Zophar the Nomothite heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathise with him and comfort him. Hooray. (laughs) Lovely to have friends who want to sympathise and comfort. Nothing wrong there. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognise him and they began to weep aloud. That's all right. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. They mourn with those who mourn. The Bible commends us to mourn with those who mourn. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. And that is Job's friends at their very best. Pastoral tip. If you don't know what to say to someone who is suffering, it is better to say nothing 
than to get it wrong. Now, we need to turn to the very end of the book to see the commentary that comes right at the end. So would you turn right to the end, to chapter 42? Because it provides the context for us for what we're going to see now. Chapter 42 and verse 7. This is the epilogue. This is the Lord speaking right at the end of the book, after all the speeches have been made. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, who seems to be the leader of the three friends, I am angry with you and your two friends. Now let me say that to hear the Lord God say that to you is one of the worst things that you could ever hear. To hear God say, I am angry with you. Because when God is angry, that means he is right if he brings judgment on you. I am angry with you. Why? Because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. That means when we come to listen to Job's friends speak, we need to read it against that backdrop. They are speaking wrongly. And Job, when he's speaking, is not speaking wrongly. Does that make sense? Because that's God's verdict on the, on the speeches that we, we read. So God's verdict on the friends is they are wrong, and his verdict on Job is that he is right. Now, once we've got that kind of control clear in our minds, we can now go back to Job chapter 3. And what's going to happen for the next uh, chapters in the book is we're going to um, hear Job speak, and then Eliphaz reply, Job speak, and then Bildad reply, Job speak, and Zophar reply. And then guess what? We're going to go, Job speak, Eliphaz reply, Job speak, Bildad reply, Job speak, Zophar reply. And then we're going to go, guess what? Job speak, Eliphaz reply, Job speak, Bildad replies, Job speaks, and poor old Zophar doesn't get a third outing. He only gets two speeches. We'll then break and mention chapter 28, which is crucial in the book, and then we'll see that we've got um, Job's final speech in chapters 29 to 31, and then we get um, uh, this rather enigmatic chap um, who speaks right uh, at the end. We'll come to him in a moment. Job speaks first, chapter 3. Now, we, we really are going to have to do this at breakneck speed. Job opened his mouth, and he curses, but not the Lord notice. He curses the day of his birth. In short, in verses 1 to 10, he asks, Why am I alive? May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said a boy was born that day... May it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. In other words, I, I wish my birthday didn't exist. He wishes that night, verse 7, had been a barren night, that there was no shout of joy. In a slightly odd bit in verse 8, the, may those who curse days curse that day. 
those who are ready to rouse Leviathan, which seems to be another mention uh, of the evil one. In other words, it would appear in the ancient days there were professional day curses. He wishes the day of his birth was cursed. He wishes that he'd never been born. Verse 11, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb. And that introduces us to the question that is now going to be posed all the way through the book. And it's the question, why? Why? It is the repeated phrase, why? And this is how Job works as wisdom literature. Because the question why is never going to get answered. We know the why, because we've read chapters one and two. But Job never gets to know why. Indeed, he doesn't need to know why. He is not rebuked for asking the question. After all, someone else asks the question why when he's dying on a cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not wrong to ask the question why. It is wrong if you demand that it has to be answered. It's very natural to ask the why question. You can see the whys that come in verse 11 and verse 12 or verse uh, 16 or verse uh, 20 or verse 23. Why, 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 why? If this is what life is going to be like, if this is my lot now, why? And you may have suffered and uh, answered that, or tried to ask that question too. It's not wrong to ask the question. It's just, there's no guarantee it gets answered. But it doesn't stop the friends from having a jolly good go. And that's what they're doing all the way through. Job is posing the question. And Eliphaz, chapter 4, Eliphaz the Temanite, who has not been party to the Chapters 1 and 2. So he doesn't know the the behind-the-scenes answer. He's not seen it. He doesn't know that. (laughs) But he'll have a go. Well, uh, we can only do one of these. We could could do hundreds of these uh, through the book. Remember, the friends are not speaking of God what is right. Let's pick it up at chapter 4. Eliphaz... uh, Looks respectful in verses 2 through to 6. And here's his dangerous theology in verse 7. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? I have observed those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Now let's pause and see whether you can spot how dangerous that is. Do you think verse 8 is orthodox biblical Christianity, orthodox biblical truth? As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Do you think that's orthodox? Poor Paul. Sorry? Poor Paul, because he's suffering and he is spreading the gospel. That's not true. But if you, okay, hold, hold that, because I'm going to pick up exactly, pick that comment up exactly in just a second. Do you think if you sow trouble, you will reap trouble? No, no. Yeah. Yeah. Always, 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 but not always immediately. 
So, is it, so, so do you think when Paul quotes this verse in Galatians 6, so flip over to Galatians 6. So, verse 7 of chapter 6 of Galatians. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Is that right? It is right. It's the Apostle Paul saying, stupid me. You do reap what you sow. Come back to Job chapter 4 and see if you can work out what Eliphaz has now done with that truth. The truth is verse 8. You reap what you sow. What's he done in verse 7? He's reversed it. So he's taken the truth of verse 8 and he's reversed it in verse 7. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Let me see if I can uh, explain it with a gardening metaphor. If, um, if, as we did earlier this year, we planted tomato seeds on our kitchen windowsill, do you know what we got in August? If you sow tomato seeds, you get tomatoes. You don't get red peppers. Yeah, what you sow is what you get. If you sow tomato seeds, you get tomatoes. That is, that is just the case. But you can't do it the other way around. This is where it becomes dangerous. You see, in the far corner of our back garden, we've got a massive, at the moment, stinging nettle patch. Do you think we sowed stinging nettle seeds? No. We didn't. In other words, what you sow is what you reap, but what you reap isn't always what you sowed. So can you see what Eliphaz has done? He's taken a truth. It is true, what you sow is what you reap, Paul agrees with that. What you sow is what you reap, but what you reap isn't always what you sowed. And that's the big point that the book of Job, or one of the big points the book of Job wants to make for you. Do you notice, if you read the whole book, it's absolutely repeated, there is no sin that Job has committed. He's almost, I know systematic theology, says I know that the only person who's sinless is the Lord Jesus, okay? But the book presents him without any sin so that you don't make Eliphaz's mistake and say, Job, you're suffering because of this. Job isn't suffering because of any sin he's committed. We know from chapter 1 why he suffers, but can you see what Eliphaz has done? And it's dangerous because he's dared. He's dared to presume that he can interpret what's going on. And you can't always. Yeah. That's a continuing challenge in the Bible because when Jesus meets that blind man and the disciples go, what was it, this man's sin or his parents? So in John 9, exactly that question. Exactly that, this, that same problem is being made, that somebody is assuming that the man who's blind because of some sin either he's committed or his, his 
family have committed? And Jesus says, no. You can't make that connection. It's not that you can never make it. It's you can't always make it. So some people's suffering is the result of their foolishness or their sinfulness. Um, So the drunk driver who has a crash and injures himself and does harm to other people, well, that is the result of his sinfulness. But you can't always work it out. In other words, there's a load of suffering in our world that you cannot explain because we haven't the -the behind-the-scenes picture. And, of course, it leads... It leads Eliphaz to, um, to call on Job to repent. But there's nothing to repent of. Uh, it leads the friends to say, come on, Job, just, just man up, be honest. You've done something wrong, because otherwise you wouldn't be suffering. But there's nothing that he's done wrong that is the cause of this suffering. Now, let me say this idea that uh, suffering is the result of something is very, very common in people's, in our culture. You must have done something to deserve this. Uh, there's, no, there's, no, there's no smoke without fire. You've done something. And the danger is you can induce wrong guilt in people as a result. Well, we could go through chapter after chapter of this back and forthness between Job and his friends. And one of the things, it's, again, it's a repetitive cycle. And one of the things you see, there's the same things being repeated. And the other thing it does is exhausts you. Literally, it exhausts you. Until you come to chapter 28. And chapter 28 is uh, crucial in the book of Job because it goes all the way back to the beginning of the book. Picks up the themes from the beginning of the book. Verses 1 through to 11 are thinking about discovery. And not in any negative sense is saying that man has done great things in terms of discovery. Um, uh, We can... um, we can, we can go and mine and explore. And that's part of our creation image to do that, isn't it? But the question that comes in verse 12 is, where can wisdom be found? Where can you find the wise way to live in this world? Where does understanding dwell? The conclusion is man cannot comprehend its worth. It cannot be found. You cannot find wisdom in the land of the living. Here's how the book of Job is working. You see, wisdom, which is what Job needs to live in this world, can't come by human observation. It has to be revealed. So the deep says, it's not in me, verse 14. The sea says, it's not with me. It can't be bought. You can't buy wisdom, even with the most precious of jewels, or gold or silver, or coral or jasper. And so the repeated question comes again, verse 20. Where does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? Well, it's hidden from us. We cannot work out wisdom just by observing our world. It's concealed from us. 
Destruction and death, say. Only a rumour of it has reached our ears. So where can wisdom be found? Well, God understands the way to it. And he alone knows where it dwells. For he knows the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it and confirmed it and tested it. And what does God do? Verse 28. And he said to man, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. And can you see those little phrases there? The fear of the Lord and shunning evil. That's what you learnt Job was like before he suffered and what he was like in the suffering. But he only could have got there because God has revealed it. Now, we don't know how it was revealed to, uh, to Job, but we know how it's revealed to us. It's real, revealed to us through this book by the Spirit. That's how we know the wise way to live. You cannot, the book of Job is saying, you cannot work out how to live wisely in this world without this. You can't pull it off. It has to come from God himself. And Job had known it. And Job was living it. And he was living it before he suffered. And he was living it during his suffering. Well, chapter 29 to 31 is uh, often called Job's last stand. A bit like kind of Custer's last stand. The battle of the... What's it? Big horn? Job's uh, last uh, stand. And we must read chapters... We're well, not going to be able to read it now, but read chapters 29 to 31 and just look at what he is uh, saying. In chapter 29... He says, I look back on how things were, and my life was great. Things were really good. Say verse 7, for example, of chapter 29, when I went to the gate of the city and took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and stepped aside, and the old men rose to their feet. He was well-respected. Chapter 30 begins with a but, but... Those young men now mock me. Men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. Well, now, now they mock. I am an object of utter scorn. And chapter 31. I would understand what's happening if I'd sinned. He says, chapter 31, verse 1, this is good advice. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. I've got some software on my computer that's called Covenant Eyes. It's borrowed from this verse. And it sends a report uh, to a mate of mine every, uh, every week about what websites I've seen on, on the computer. And sometimes Bob rings me up and says, I think you've been looking at too many cricket websites. <laughs> And notice, can you see the repeated word then from verse 5, if? Can you see the if? And he's now listing, well, the commentators debate how many sins he's listing. But if I had walked in falsehood, 
Then I'd have understood it. Or verse 9, if my heart had been enticed by a woman. If I denied justice to my men servants. He was a perfect employer. If I have denied the desires of the poor. If I've failed to show right social care and compassion on those in need. Or verse 24, if I put my trust in gold. If I'd become a materialist. Or verse 29, if I'd rejoiced at an enemy's misfortune. But I actually loved my enemies. In other words, my mates have told me I've been sinning. But I haven't. But I still suffer. And it just leaves the question, why? And verse uh, 40, the words of Job are ended. He's got nothing more to say. We then come across this rather enigmatic chap called Elihu who gets, uh, well, he's marginally better than the uh, other three friends. He doesn't get rebuked at the end of the book. He gets uh, a genealogy, which the other three don't uh, get. And, uh, and he gets four speeches, one more than the others. He doesn't say anything that's particularly wrong. He just doesn't say anything particularly helpful. So he's not rebuked for what he says. What he says is actually true. But again, it doesn't get to the heart of the issue because he's, like the other three, he's not seen behind the scenes. One commentator just calls him a windbag. <laughs> what does Job want to happen? Well, at the end of his last speech, he just wishes that God would speak to him. And he wishes God would explain it all to him. Well, eventually, chapter 38... God does speak. The Lord answered out of the storm. But he doesn't, he doesn't answer Job by telling Job what Job thinks he needs to know. Rather, he tells Job what he does need to know. And what he needs to know is not the answer why. That's not what he needs to know. He needs to know that God is good and that God's in control. And so he's, uh, he's put on the mastermind chair. You ever watch Mastermind? And you get, get, oh, this, this, the, uh, when I watch Mastermind, I, I never answer it. I can never answer any of the questions. The questions that now the Lord asks are not mastermind. You can answer them all. So the introduction is, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? In other words, you're, you're saying things you don't understand. Brace yourself like a man, and I'll question you, and you shall answer me. Well, the first uh, question, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Now, I didn't think you existed. Or verse 8, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, and I made the clouds its garments? In other words, I'm the creator God. I'm in control, I'm in control of the morning and the evening, verse 12. In fact, you don't know much about the world, Job, do you? Verse 16, have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? You've not been down to the bottom of the ocean, have you? Implication, I know all about it. What is the uh, way to, to the abode of light? Or have you entered the storehouses of the snow, verse 22? You've been through the polar caps? Uh, what's the place to where lightning is dispensed from or dispersed from? You don't know. 
Well, let's try this one, Job, chapter, thir- uh, chapter 38, verse 31. Uh, what do you like at putting the stars in spa- into place? Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Now, I, um, I googled that and discovered that the constellation Pleiades, the nearest star in that constellation, is 75 million light years away. That is, if you, if you were to travel at the speed of light, it would take you 75 million years to get there. It's quite Relatively, Sorry? The light we're seeing now was released when the dinosaurs were here. A long time ago. A long time ago. But what's the greatest throwaway line in the Bible? Do you know that one in Genesis 1.16? He made the stars also. It's kind of... Of course he... In other words, Job, you're, I'm, I'm the God who is in control of the world. I, I'm the one who's made it. I'm the one who makes the sun come up and come down. I'm the one, I'm the one who makes it rain or not rain. And so the questions just go on through chapters 38 and 39. And then Job answers in chapter 40 and verse 3. Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. It's a little kind of... I'll, I'll stop speaking, in other words. But there's a round two. Just as there were two rounds, do you remember, between Satan and the Lord in chapters 1 and 2, there are two rounds between Job and the Lord in chapters 38 through to uh, 42. And he's now got to look at two particular creatures in chapter 40, uh, Behemoth, which uh, might be a hippo, and Leviathan, who is used in Isaiah as the devil, and God's saying, I'm even in control of the biggest creature on earth, and I'm in control of all the evil on the earth. I am in control. And Job answers a second time in chapter 42, and verses 1 through to 6. And he says, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Listen now, and I'll speak. And so I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Not repent of sin. He's not rebuked for a sin. He's changed his mind, literally. I've changed my mind. I don't need, I don't need you to answer when I've understood the kind of God you are. I mentioned to you earlier about uh, my first wife, Ruth, and uh, her two siblings dying as well. Well, For Ruth's mum died uh, two years ago, and for 30 years I wrote to her every month. First Sunday of the month I wrote her a letter every every month, and she wrote back to me every month. Uh, We had a lovely relationship. Um, And I remember near to her death, I wrote to her and I asked her, did you ever seriously doubt God when you lost your third child? And I kept the letter because she wrote back to me and said, I've never doubted God because the two things I know about God are that he is in complete control in our world and he is completely good. And if you believe God is entirely good and he's in control, then actually you can survive. Faith can survive. 
And then she went on to say, not from the book of Job, she said, I believe God is in complete control, and I believe God is only good, and I know both of these things are true because of Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross shows God is in complete control, and Jesus' death on the cross shows he's completely good. Well, the epilogue balances the introduction to the book. Slightly longer, <clears throat> you get the Lord rebuking Eliphaz in chapter 42 and verse 7. I'm angry with you, as we've read. But the Lord is merciful, and Job is to act as a priest on behalf of um, the friends, and a burnt offering is to be made for themselves. The burnt offering, which from Leviticus 1 we know is what soothes the anger of God, a substitute dies in the place of the sinner. It's a great visual aid, the burnt offering, because it shows actually what should have happened to the sinner. They should be completely burnt. But a substitute is allowed to be offered in the place of the sinner so that the sinner might be forgiven. And we see in verse 9 that's what happens. The Lord accepts Job's prayer. And after Job had prayed for his uh, friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. He has another ten children. This time the three daughters are named and they become part of family inheritance in verse 15, which is very unusual in uh, the ancient world or in the Old Testament for women to be inheritors. But the boys and the girls all will inherit from Job's wealth. Job's wealth, if you look carefully at verses 12 and 14, through to 14, you'll see that he has 10 children, but the property is double what he had right at the start. He is blessed even more at the end than he had been at the beginning of the book. But he still never gets to know the answer why. Well, yeah, yeah. I've always looked at this and assumed that that ten children at the beginning and end is actually still a doubling of the children because they're the only thing which are eternal. Is that? Um, I'm not trying. To, I haven't pondered that. I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Um, but. Uh, but you are, meant, you are meant to see that Job is, is being blessed as he was, but with the property even more blessed. Um, and that, that leads us to make some, uh, some big themes that you see in the book. Have you worked out now the wisdom literature, the inadequacy of observation? You just can't work it out. You see the danger of false counselling. If you, do, if you can't work it out, then don't pretend you can. And don't pretend to interpret someone's experience in a way that leads them to do something that would be in a, in, inappropriate. Um, don't say, if you don't, if you don't know, and most of the time we don't, if you don't know why someone suffers, I don't know why you suffer. So... Um, Last year, my sister, younger than me, died of cancer. And as she was um, in the hospice, she said, why me? She said, why, why, why am I going? 
She's got two teenage kids. Why me? And I haven't got, hadn't got an answer for her. Other than to say, God's in control and God's good. Which means the information that you do need is you need to know wisdom. You need to know the sovereign God and then the information you don't need to know. And then intriguingly, and I'll try and do this in a way that's not too difficult to understand, but it is quite complicated. The pattern of the book is intriguing. Basically, this wisdom book begins with a scene of perfection at the beginning. Language is going to be inadequate now. And it ends with a scene of perfection, but the perfection's even better than it was at the start, if that's not a kind of... If you get the kind of what I'm trying to say. But it's a picture of perfection at the start. It's a picture of perfection at the end. And the big thing that happens in the middle is, is the interaction between suffering and sin. And the point here is that there is no connection between sin and suffering. Now, the whole of the Bible works on exactly the same pattern. The Bible begins in Genesis 1 and 2 with a picture of perfection. And it ends in Revelation 21 and 22 with a picture of perfection, though the perfection at the end of the Bible is even better than the perfection at the beginning of the Bible, if that's not too difficult kind of language to get our heads around. Because at the start, it's just Adam and Eve. But at the end, you've got the people from every nation, tribe and tongue, too numerous to count. It's even better than it was at the start. And what have you got in the middle of the Bible? Well, as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, which we'll come to in the second last session, as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, we have suffering in the world. All suffering in the world ultimately is the result of Adam and Eve's sin. So there's a disc- that's not like it is in Job. Does that make sense? Think now of the Lord Jesus. How were things for the Lord Jesus in eternity past, if that's not a strange phrase? In eternity past, how were things for Jesus? Before the creation, how were things for Jesus in eternity past? Perfection. It's perfection, the Holy Trinity, in perfect relationships with each other, yes? How are things for the Lord Jesus at the end, in eternity future? He's on the throne, it's perfection, and it's better perfection even than the past, because now he's got a bride. Now he's got a body of which he's head. It's perfection even better. What happens to the Lord Jesus when he steps into human history? Is he suffers, not because of his sin, a bit like Job, but he suffers in order to take the consequences of Adam and Eve's and all our sin on himself, so that one day you and I can go and be with the Lord Jesus forever. So the book of Job operates a bit like the whole of the Bible, and operates a bit like the Lord Jesus, with the difference being that the book of Job, Job suffers not because of his sin, as Adam and Eve do, Job suffers not because of his sin, but his suffering doesn't achieve anything for anyone else's sin, 
Whereas when the Lord Jesus breaks into our world, he suffers, not because of his sin, but actually to deal with the problem of all our sin. Well, the summary, the book of Job, is picked up in the New Testament in um, uh, the book of James. And let me ask you, do you think that after you have suffered in this world, do you think God will give you something wonderful? wonderful? Will your suffering end? One day it will. Not in this world. Job's suffering ended in this world. But James picks up uh, uh, the book of Job uh, and... um, And says in James chapter 5, this is in verse 11. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. In other words, keep going and you will be blessed. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. There's no promise that your suffering will end in this life. But there is a promise that your suffering, if you're a man of faith like, woman of faith like Job that your suffering will end, and you'll be blessed. Now let's pause there and see if you want to ask a question on Job, and then we might take the last break, I think, and then head on through. I want to ask a question about Job, about how Job's working as wisdom literature, and how, how, how you need wisdom, because you cannot, you cannot answer every question by observation. You just can't do it. That makes sense, does it? Yeah. Followed it? Or? Yeah. So it sounds far more useful when I'm suffering to counsel myself through Job than if my friend's suffering. Mm. I think what the, that little um, poem about wisdom in chapter 28 is telling us what, what people need in the midst of suffering is to fear God and shun evil. I think that that's Old Testament language for repent and believe. And so I, do, I think we do have something to say to the non-Christian who suffers. We can't answer why they suffer, but we can say that the wise way to live through suffering is to repent and believe the gospel. And why is it the wise thing to do? Because when you repent and believe the gospel, look what happened to Job at the end. It was a physical thing in this world, but he was blessed. And if you will repent and believe the gospel, ultimately you will be blessed. And you'll be blessed with the joy of the new creation, seeing Jesus face to face. And that, and that, is, true, that, that is wonderfully true blessing. So we do, we do have something to say to the non-Christian when the non-Christian suffers. That makes sense? Um, because if we, if, if we leave... The, uh, 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 well, it's true for anyone. But if we leave a non-Christian who's suffering and we don't share the gospel with them, they are only going to continue to suffer, but suffer even beyond death. And so it would be car- it's the only kind thing to do when someone's suffering is to share the gospel with them. Yeah. But wouldn't you say that Job is different in the end than at the beginning? There's, he, before, he, he trusted God and he didn't sin, but he did not really know God. Well, I think he... he is a, a, 
in, in his suffering, he's not suffering, you know, aimlessly, or God had an intention in this allowing, whatever you will call it. We'll get to that probably. <laughs> um, no, that's very shrewd. Um, the t- the t- the, um, and he's a, he's a different man. And he, and he acknowledges that in chapter 42. Um, uh, he says, um, I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me uh, to know. Has, 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 has something significantly happened for Job through the suffering? He knows God in a bigger and deeper and greater way than he did before. But it's not the reason he suffered. The reason he suffered is God is God is proving Satan's lie as a lie. So so um, the reason Job suffered was because God is proving to us that it is a lie that you can't have faith. Does God use Job's suffering to grow Job in his knowledge of the Lord? Yes, he certainly does. And that would be a good thing to pray that when we suffer, that's what happens to us. That our eyes will get to see the Lord God in a whole bigger way than we did before. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. Sorry? Yes, all, all apart from the introduction and the conclusion in the book of Job is written as poetry, which is how most of the wisdom literature uh, is uh, written. It means that uh, when you read it, read it, remember that it uses all the things that poetry does. So I don't know whether Ralph, when he did uh, Psalms with you, will have shown you that Um, you get repeated phrases, you get the same thing said twice in the same verse, that kind of thing, yes? Uh, And that happens in the book of Job uh, quite a lot. You get hyperbole, Um, so using um, slightly over-the-top language to kind of make the points that that he's, um, he's wanting to make. It's full, if, when I've preached on through the book of Job, it's hard work because there's lots of metaphor in it. So you have to explain some of the metaphors um, that, that are going on. Just, I'll give you an example. Turn to chapter 6. All of Job's second speech is, is written in metaphor poetry. Let me and see if you get you just we'll read just a few verses, see if you get just get the flavour on it. If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales. Notice that's a repeated because you know, that's the same thing just said twice in the same verse, using the idea of uh, of, uh, of 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 the scales. It would surely outweigh the sa- the sand of the seas. Well that's a picture. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. Well, that's a metaphor. It's not literal arrows that are in him. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. And then you just... I love these ones. Does a wild donkey bray when it has grass, or an ox bellow when it has fodder? Notice the repeat. With the two, two different animals? And the answer is no. 
Is tasteless food eaten without salt? No. Or is there flavour in the white of an egg? Not really, is there? You have to put sugar in it and whisk it to make it into meringue. And, and so every verse there is, 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 me, is me, metaphor. And you just have to, and that's just, so instead of writing it as a narrative, as a story, you just get it told, repeatedly told, but, um, but told with lots of picture words that are going on. And that's, that's just how poetry is. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Did Job exist? My own view is that he did, um, because I think otherwise James using him as a role model is, a, is an empty role model if it's merely fictitious. Um, it doesn't make sense to you. Otherwise, you might have said, you'd use fables as, as examples. So I think so. But you will read some scholars who think, who think that it... It must be just a, um, the whole thing is just a, a legend. A true, a, a legend with truth in it, they would argue. But, but, uh, but my own view that is that James 5 makes it most likely that he's a real bloke. Thank you, good question. Yeah? It's interesting, I was going to get Satan back home and say, Yes. Um, it's the, remember that the, the whole book is not about the overthrow of Satan. It's about the exposure of Satan's lie. That's what, that's what chapters 1 and 2 is introducing us to. That Satan has made a lie that, that we, the reader, must read and think at the end, well, Satan wasn't right, was he? In chapters 1 and 2, he wasn't right. Look at Job. He wasn't right. And we have to read elsewhere for the rubbing Satan's nose in it. Um, and of course, that, you know, I, th- I think this is on the next session, but um, do you know, what, is, what does God say in the Garden of Eden will happen to Satan, to the snake? Crush his head. And then crush his, crawl along the ground, and then crush his head, yes? Is that a good way to get rid of a snake, do you think? It is. Andy, did you do, did you do the training course um, with Andy Porter? Was he on the, your one or was he on the year before, perhaps? And Andy Porter was a ministry trainee in Preston. And he came home from the ministry training course that I was teaching and got home on a Thursday. And when he went into his uh, lounge, he saw an eight-foot green snake sitting curled up on his bookcase. It was not his. <laughs> What do you what do you do what do you do this is the funny bit what do you do when you find a snake in your house well what what Andy did was he edged backwards closed the door and then dialed nine 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 and the lady on the end said what service do you require and he said I don't know but there's a snake in my lounge and do you know what she said tell me your address. And we will have the snake man around within an hour. You didn't know that there were people who will do. There are there are there are people who will come and get rid of snakes, and and so, and so they came and got rid of the snake. Now, what Andy could have done is just gone stamped on its head. That would have dealt with the problem. Now, do you want to know the really scary bit? Andy lived in a series of terraced houses, and this snake 
was owned by someone six houses up the road and it had escaped six months previously. Where had it been for six months? When you go to bed tonight, look under the duvet. You know how the crime watch they used to say, don't be scared, these things don't happen. Well, you'd have a little look. Have a little look. You, uh, you never know. <laughs> and, and that idea of crushing the serpent's head, when will that be fulfilled? When is that fulfilled? Who is going to do it? Well, the clearest reference to Genesis 3.15 is in Romans 16.20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. It's God who does it. It is done through because of Jesus' death on the cross, which wins the great victory. But the final eradication of, this, of the serpent is going to be done under our feet. We're going to trample his head, head down. And we'll do it all together. And, it'll, and then... The, and that's probably done in the next talk for us. So. <laughs> okay, let's have tea and, let's have tea and coffee, and then we'll come back for a few minutes together.